Greetings, everyone. Um, today is the first official day of summer, June the 21st of 2022. And I thought, uh, you know, it was only 93 degrees yesterday here in Wisconsin. So I thought, why not wear this nice lined, like it's got lining in this jacket. Um, why not wear this nice lined built for winter jean jacket today? And uh, we'll become the first ever Running Into the Fog podcast where the Johnson brothers have not had a guest. Um, so anybody that's tuning in for a first time, we traditionally have a guest. Uh, last week, we had a mind-blowing uh, experience, uh, a topic come up uh, regarding caregiver, the intersections of being a caregiver and a competitive intelligence professional with Emily uh, Pillar, which was, again, just a remarkable discussion and a whole ton of vulnerability and transparency that came about. Um, we've had some interesting other guests in the recent uh, several weeks. This time, we were supposed to welcome our, our good buddy, Rob Duncan, uh, to the call today. Uh, but Rob developed a cough, and he was worried about your uh, experience uh, hearing him as a guest on Running Into the Fog. So we, we pushed Rob off. Uh, the next available date we could find where Rob was also available goes out into August. But he'll be worth the wait. Um, instead, for episode 41 today, and uh, also for episode 42 next Tuesday, you're stuck with us. So uh, the Johnson brothers decided that we would try uh, something different where we have uh, just ourselves jamming on uh, really a two-part series, Eric. It's kind of interesting how over the weekend when we learned of Rob's uh, more imminent uh, need to postpone, uh, we sort of came up with this idea simultaneously. Maybe that means we're reading, reading each other's minds or somebody's reading our our minds and feeding it to the other guy. There you uh, go. But, but this uh, topic of what are your top 10 intelligence mission priorities during the Great Recession of 2022 and 2023 came up. And we decided that we would uh, jam on this and try to get uh, five topics into today's podcast and five topics into next Tuesday's podcast, right? Exactly. Great setup, Derek. And again, thank you all for joining us here today with no guests. We have a guestless, uh, you know, uh, show today, but that means you're the guest. Uh, so as described last time, we need three interlocutors to step forward and volunteer to join us during Unspeakable in the second half. For those of you currently uh, streaming on social, let me share this so that you can go ahead and scan that QR code and join the bridge. Uh, scanning the QR code to join the bridge will allow you to get in here and become one of those interlocutors that we're describing, of which we've got uh, a couple of dozen forming up of our closest friends and allies out there. Uh, thank you, Jim Miller, for noticing my shirt. Uh, I thought that because we're now deep into what will be reflected upon in a few weeks as the second quarter of economic uh, contraction, otherwise defining the recession, the start, at least, of the Great Recession of 2022 and 2023, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to encourage you to embrace the suck, uh, as they say in the U.S. military, uh, that, you know, it's going to suck, and you're going to have to learn how to live with that and embrace it and, uh, you know, move forward anyway, as my friend, our friend Jeff Meyer would say. Uh, so throughout that, you know, scan that QR code, get on the bridge and, and join us there. And that'll be the last time I promote that. Uh, but uh, Derek, I know we, we sort of did this serendipitously. I had this kind of thing about, I wanted to do kind of a top 10 list of 
now that we're going into what I think will be remembered as our fifth recession in the history of the company. So in the last 27 years, we've had four uh, official recessionary contractions. I think our fifth is upon us. And uh, as we reflect on what CI does differently during a recession, we thought it'd be interesting to observe kind of the top five things on a defensive posture, which is sort of today's uh, conversation, and then come back next Tuesday and we'll talk about the offensive uh, side of things uh, and get into that a little bit. So with that, we're gonna take them five minutes a piece, get your comments, volunteer as interlocutor for the second half throughout the uh, chat. And as we pick you all uh, to do that, Derek and I are gonna jam on these one at a time for, for five minutes each until we hit unspeakable and then we'll cut the social streamers loose. So all those of you on social, uh, thank you for joining us again. Uh, you're not scanning our QR codes like you used to because we now have a proof of humanity function that's been built in. I'm gonna go ahead and using the POAP mobile app, I'm gonna scan that QR code and mint my POAP once my humanity has been verified, which you can see it's now doing. And I've got to play this little game where I have to say, click the light blue button in my case, orange, black, orange, orange, black. Oh, this is tricky. Purple. <laughs> They put the they put the word of the color in a different color than the actual thing to try and trick you. Dark blue, purple, dark red. Hang on, boy, this is tough. Dark red, dark. I won, claiming my pull. Got it. See? So all nice. all those botnets out there. And a score of 12. Claim my PO app. Open in PO app, and I got it. We're minting my PO app. So. Uh, you're going to see that happen. Please go ahead and do that. POAP Mobile is the easiest way to do it. And Derek, I'm guessing you haven't set up your crypto wallet and attached it to your POAP Mobile app quite yet. Not yet, but what you just experienced um, kind of took me back to like the scar tissue of, you remember the old uh, locks on your, like whenever I'd go to basketball practice or something in high school, I'd have to try to figure out my, my lock combination. And you get it off, you, you had a little bit of wiggle room, but if you got it off too much, you'd have to start over. Um, so I'm glad that you were able to get it on the first try. Today's June the 21st. We mentioned it being the first official day of summer. And uh, the overarching theme for today's podcast is cost of capital considerations for operating a profitable business. So uh, topic number one, and I'm going to put us on the clock with five minutes here real quick, Eric. What changes with win-loss in a recessionary environment versus a growth market. You know, and we talked uh, in lead up to today about how you know, it feels like our field is trying to move win-loss into being uh, all, uh, well, more like move competitive intelligence into being all about sales enablement. And you and I both know better. Um, win-loss and sales enablement is one element of it that is uh, arguably much more tactical than it is strategic in its nature. But uh, I think you have a little bit better way of looking at it uh, through the lens of how loyal customers, formerly loyal customers, semi-loyal customers, and the naive segment. In other words, that segment that doesn't even know that you're there to do what you do. Um, expand for me a little bit in terms of that particular project concept. And once again, linking it back to where recessionary markets can really take advantage of. Yeah, so this, uh, this idea came out of a project that I led maybe 10 years ago or so, and it was 
how can we account for the superiority criteria of the broadest possible segmentation set uh, from total addressable customer segments? And so uh, the easy way to do it was, let's take an even sample size of each of the four possible customer types. One being loyal customers, they only buy from you. Second, uh, semi-loyal, they buy from you and several others. Maybe only one other, but at least one other. Uh, of that, of whatever your category is. Third, those who used to be loyal and have now sworn you off, they've defected, you did something to drive them away. And then fourth, the naive buyer who has never heard of you before. They buy your segment or they're a segment who buys your offer, but they didn't know you did that or had never had any experience with you. Now the superiority criteria between those four customer segments is gonna be uh, fairly nuanced. Uh, and um, I think you're gonna find that it's very, very common. So, you know, the original project was let's do 10 customers in each segment, and then let's compare the superiority criteria of satisfiers, drivers, and disruptors and see where the differences are so that we can be a little more intentional about how we um, consolidate and protect the loyals. We take share out of the wallet of the semis. We win back the formerly loyals and we create awareness among the naives. So it's four very different missions that win-loss performs based on those four different customer segments. And it gives you a little more structured way uh, to do your win-loss analysis, at least with uh, customer segmentation types that are familiar to you and that you know fairly well. And I think recessions are a great time to do that because uh, share gets pretty scarce and everyone tries to compete to take your share away. You'd better figure out how to protect it and grow it if you're not going to lose it. Yeah, so uh, you and I had a jam session this morning on a topic of superiority for the book that we're writing, right? And the, the concept being, and I think it links really well to this, you know, of uh, exercising your dominion and the, the, the insights inherent in talking to the, to the loyals, the formerly loyals, the semis and the naive, you're going to learn a lot about, you know, where, where are the satisfiers in the marketplace, the drivers and potential disruptors to you know, your product set or service set or the hybrid of product and service that you might uh, provide. And you know, the one thing I would add about all of that is oftentimes you know, we, we operate in such a, a world and depending on what segment and industry you're coming at it from, your, your odds of having channel partners that are pretty important to your future are gonna go up. Um, we do a ton of projects around looking specifically at win-loss related to just channel partners. And those channel partners are sometimes the gatekeepers because they arguably control the relationship with the end buyer. And if you're not paying just as much attention to those channel partners in your, in your new way of thinking about win-loss and recessionary environments, I think you're missing a, a big opportunity. Any reaction to that? Concept. Yeah, I would, I would even say a, a more sort of rational way to look at it is that those channel partners have the intimate relationship with uh, the end buyer uh, more likely than you do. If you are selling through channels, they're the ones who really understand the sort of boots on the ground, local buying dynamics of those segments. Uh, by the way, Terry Thiel, Terry, you're our first interlocutor today. Uh, and here's a comment from Terry. Shouldn't you start by sizing in other words, prioritizing the four segments, it's a great point. Uh, not all four segments are necessarily equal. 
they're all equal in terms of what you can learn from them, however. You can learn uh, a similar amount of insight from each of those four segments, but that doesn't suggest that you would necessarily place your emphasis on uh, share acquisition the same uh, with proportionality for all four segments. So great point, Terry. Uh, you definitely need to be proportional in terms of risk reward. Uh, and if you find that you know, you're an incumbent and you've got you know, loyals and semi-loyals constituting 90% of your consideration set, you know, fantastic. You, know, you consolidate and protect uh, those existing relationships uh, whether direct or through the channel. And uh, you can then think about where your growth comes from. Growth in the segment by definition will then have to come from formerly loyals and naives under that set of circumstances. So 10% of your allocation to growth uh, among segments that do not currently buy from you. Sounds like a pretty easy argument to make in terms of uh, strategic allocation of assets. Let's bring Terry on to uh, kick us off you know, here in uh, unspeakable when we can jam on that concept a little bit more. Our five minutes goes by so fast on these things, believe it or not, sure it, uh, my, my timer dinged about a minute ago. So I'm gonna start the next five minutes on subtopic number two. And that is how does supply chain fragility and forecasts around supply chain resilience need to be reconsidered? Yeah. Good, good point. And Terry had another comment there about not agreeing that markets shrink in a recession. Thank you. Uh, that'll be your first point when we go to interlocutor. So supply chain is uh, different depending on the circumstance here. I think a lot of the current uh, inflation, well, uh, buying power erosion. I'll be uh, Austrian in my definition of uh, my economic terms here. Uh, inflation is the growth of the money supply that then has a uh, covalent you know, side effect of decreasing your buying power, which is why prices go up. So prices are actually a secondary uh, indication of the increase in the money supply. Um, the, the nature of price increases suggests that there's both a supply and demand disequilibrium. And I think what uh, the pandemic demonstrated to us was that as we see uh, workforce flows begin to change, we have very much you know, associated supply chain differences that can pop up and surprise us. Uh, and then we have, you know, accidents happening like uh, that gigantic shipping container that got stuck sideways in the Suez Canal last year. Uh, that set back a lot of, you know, normal supply chain flows for, you know, finished goods uh, pretty dramatically for a few days there. And I think it was a billion and a half dollars a day of trade was being lost by that single blockage uh, just by itself. Um, so, and thank you, uh, William, for letting me know all 15 unthinkable POAPs have been redeemed. So I'm going to take you down, William, uh, until um, we are in unspeakable. Good job, everybody. And way to prove your humanity. I'm assuming you all successfully proved your humanity there. But what I'll, what I'll sort of say about supply chains is we've got a standard set of operating principles right now where orders are being placed for offshore manufactured goods. And those orders are going to be delayed. And what's going to happen is you're going to have an inventory. Uh, what do they call it? They call it, uh, is it the bullwhip effect where you have this bullwhip effect with inventory where it's arriving late and forcing you to discount in order to move that inventory and keep it liquid and in order to make room for the next season's inventory. And so in our opening you know, analytics scrum this morning, I remember telling you guys, don't buy your patio furniture now 
buy your patio furniture in August when it's 80% off uh, and it's really on sale. Don't buy your sweatpants right now, by the way, for the winter. Buy your sweatpants in October and November when they're 80% off uh, on sale and discounted for the Christmas season, et cetera. So point being, take advantage as a consumer of this disequilibria because you're gonna see discounting and disinflation in all of those areas of the supply chain that you don't really need. Consumer discretionary in particular, you're gonna see a massive amount of discounting in the back half of this year. Whereas energy and food, you're gonna to continue to see double digits, I think in real uh, inflation. And I'm using the shadow stats definition, which is approximately double uh, what we have uh, in official CPI. Anyway, Derek, what's your take on supply chains? I mean, there's there's lots of great ways to comprehend or understand where your competitors are really at with their supply chains, right? And what are they waiting on from a raw material point of view in order to get those products done? And where's that raw material product add in its supply chain in order to get it to that point of value add? Um, you know, a lot of that can be done, obviously, through techniques like human intel work and um, even some advanced secondary uh, tracking of shipment containers or other various techniques like it. But, you know, we are of the opinion and that the pandemic started to induce this more, right, that the localization of this production system, you know, important to the products that, you know, a manufacturer might sell, that, that localizing that production system is going to be important potentially for the rest of all time because of the a number of factors, whether it be, you know, trade relations with other countries or cost of capital considerations or otherwise. Uh, and I think it's, it's one of those areas where if you're not looking at the supply chain as an intelligence professional, you're missing, you know, a, a great opportunity to have impact, arguably with some of the stakeholders that you may not interact with the most. Um, and I just think it's a, it's an important area where, especially from a profit point of view, you have to be thinking about. Derek, you reminded me that one of the first intelligence products I ever designed was called the Daily International Trade Brief. And it was produced on a custom basis uh, using Department of Commerce data around shipping container inflows and outflows at uh, the nation's ports. Uh, and all that data was available in a DOS-based uh, environment. So actually, I think it was Unix. Um, I think I telneted into a Unix port at the Department of Commerce. And in those days, I did not know Unix. Uh, like you might think you need to know Unix in the mid-1990s. Anyway, uh, you, you prompted that memory from the early days of Aurora's intelligence doctrine. Cool. Our dinger went off, so I'm going to move on. Um, yeah. We'll come back to all these in the second half, everybody. So uh, subtopic number three, understanding how pricing affects profitability in a hyper-elevated cost of capital environment. What do you yeah. think? Boy, pricing is a tough one in a, in a normal growth economy, but I think during uh, recessionary contractions, you have a lot of risk attached to pricing. Um, and you know, not understanding what consumer expectations or you know, if you're B2B, uh, what the buyer's expectations are in terms of price and price policy, particularly when you're in a kind of pre-stagflationary situation like we have right now, where we could experience double digit inflation and negative growth for some years to come, uh, like we did in the late 1970s, for example, here in the United States or 
you know, Germany experienced during the Weimar era uh, and Zimbabwe uh, just a few years ago. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have $10 billion fiat currency notes here in the United States like they did in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, and a $10 billion Zimbabwean dollar note uh, today is actually worth more as a collectible than it was uh, back in the days when you could buy, you know, a half a loaf of bread with it or what the whatever the parity was of the cir circumstances. Bottom line is price uh, is one of the trickier sort of tactical areas of marketing, merchandising, competitiveness. Price policy is even tougher. You know, what are the discounting criteria that ultimately lead to a competitor sharpening their pencil uh, in the market? And that goes for B2B or B2C alike. Anyway, I'll toss it back to you because I know we're really I, scared. I think pricing and discounting strategy is just as important as being able to lay your hands on the actual numbers, you know, right? So, you know, if you're out there looking at competitors, it's what this theme is all about, right? The, the opportunity to say, what, what is the most likely scenario with these uh, inflationary time, time frames or these recessionary variables in place? What, what is my competitor most likely to do? You know, and you have to build out various, um, you know, scenarios that are, that have some thought and modeling put to them, but you're, you're looking to get uh, directionally accurate rather than get precise. You know, precision is a, is tough in the best of times, but being able to, to get yourself comfortable with the directional accuracy available through a variety of these techniques is something I, I think is pretty important, but you and I touched on the fact earlier today, Eric, that, that food and energy is probably going to be one of those things, at least for the foreseeable future, that doesn't get discounted. And you know, I think that we're going to find uh, a lot of these uh, so-called disposable, um, you know, the, I guess uh, non-required goods, if you will, you know, items that you don't have to purchase. You don't have to buy the new pair of sweatpants or the patio set. And understanding... Yeah, the discretionary items are, are going to be items that you just simply set aside during this time frame where, you know, you're spending twice as much as you did not all that long ago to fill up your gas tank. Right. And I've had some conversations even with business leaders that, you know, they're they're coming to terms with this, you know, slowdown and they're believing that it's going to be transitory. Right. The word of the year of 2021 uh, transitory and recognizing that transitory is not true, that this could be persistent. Uh, and tr transitory inflation is the reference there. I would say that transitory, you know, snap back to the, the good old days, the expectations that we have uh, about how our operating cost structure and the, you know, the expectations of our customers, the expectations of our people, uh, which I think is a good segue into topic number four, and we better hit it quick. Yep. Yep. Uh, my timer didn't go off, but we got started late. So item four, how will talent priorities change during a recessionary environment? I'm seeing out there, you know, I watch a ton of CNBC and other things. So you're looking at the, the mid and large cap companies, you know, in general, and it feels like there's this sensation of job offers being rescinded, you know, mass layoffs starting to occur. And if I were looking at my competitive set, you know, as a, especially a publicly held uh, peer group, you know, it's pretty easy to lay your hands on that data. But if you're thinking about privately held, you know, competition, you need to figure out some ways to anticipate, you know, what's really happening behind the scenes and where might those next layoffs or um, I'm going to call them uh, salary or 
hiring freezes, when are those going to start? And, you know, you can do that through a variety of, you know, uh, scanning job boards and, you know, uh, review sites like Glassdoor and other things, of course, but there are all sorts of other techniques. What do you, what do you think about that, Eric? You know, looking well, at the kind of rate of change. Yeah, I think uh, productive capacity is one thing. Um, most corporations today, uh, large corporations at least, spend less on production than they do on administration, uh, talent-wise. And so a lot of the you know, workforce that they're trying to acquire are doing administrative activities, sales, risk management, marketing-related activities, that sort of thing, as opposed to producing uh, the output of what it is they bring to market. So I think um, the old days, I, I, again, you're reminding me of counting cars in a manufacturing facility parking lot uh, in the past where uh, back in the old days, you know, you'd go and you'd stake out uh, a factory and you'd look at the ebbs and flows of automobiles through the parking lot to see, you know, what the changes in workforce might look like from one week to the next. Um, today, I think that's less of a phenomena, at least here in the United States, where a lot of that production has moved offshore. But I know we're getting short on time. Derek, take us through our fifth topic, and then we're going to cut to Terry Thiel as our first interlocutor in Unspeakable and say goodbye to the unthinkable social streamers. Sounds good. This last uh, topic, number five, at least for today, centers on this concept of buying share or taking share. And the question is, are there vulnerable acquisition candidates that we can acquire to bargain in the next 18 months? Yep. Great subject and one that I think during recessions creates more opportunity than when you've got, you know, a Federal Reserve buying corporate bond offerings at a rate of, you know, $20 billion a month uh, or 40, was it 40 billion a month from uh, about March of 2020 through uh, late last year. Uh, a lot of that corporate debt led to a lot of companies who could continue to refinance their otherwise zombie operations and keep themselves liquid. Uh, the sort of purposes of creative destruction are that those underwriting should not be actually supported by the government. That should, this creative destruction effect should kick in where the inefficient are allowed to not only go bankrupt, but be then acquired at an asset level by those who are able to operate at a profit. Uh, and I think what you saw during the pandemic uh, and well, starting starting at least with the pandemic uh, and continuing to some extent today is this injection of liquidity and quantitative easing that enabled a lot of those inefficient companies to keep operating. If that stops, assuming QT, quantitative tightening is the sort of regime change going forward. And I think we're gonna be a little surprised how disciplined the Fed's gonna be. Uh, Jerome Powell is channeling his inner Paul Volcker and it's not possible to raise interest rates to 14% unless you want about $11 trillion in uh, the, the federal uh, deficit being spent on interest service alone uh, on the national debt. With a 30 plus trillion dollar you know, national debt, every percent increase in interest rates is about a trillion dollars uh, worth of uh, you know, tax money that they've got to get from somewhere. Uh, I think we're gonna continue to see quantitative tightening happen uh, through other means, chiefly through liquidity. So obviously, uh, with about 30 seconds, take us home with your thoughts on that whole uh, you know, acquisition, buying versus uh, taking share question, Derek, and then we'll say goodbye to the social folks. I mean, another good example of uh, companies readying themselves to shed certain business units occurred just today. You know, Kellogg, one of the longest standing, you know, they, they, they purport themselves to be, the brand suggests that they're a cereal company. 
but they really aren't a serial company. Uh, that's not how they make the bulk of their their money anymore. It's the snack business, uh, representing about 80% of their revenue. So Kellogg's announced that they're going to s- split off into three publicly held companies. And you know, my opinion is that's simply the the board saying we need to keep our options open in order to truly shed you know some of these least profitably sought within the last year or two with General Electric and a couple other companies that have announced the same same sort of thing where they're splitting their companies these big conglomerates into separate subdivisions and I I'm of the opinion that that is uh, to make themselves or or those divisions more attractive to uh, acquisition and you know to the point of this question you know how are you as an intelligence professional helping your uh, finance stakeholders or others uh, in M&A be more equipped to acquire at bargain uh, numbers, you know, and, and set your company up for, for the growth phase that will occur post-recessionary timeframe. Terry, you Great are thoughts. here. Great thoughts, Derek. Terry's in the house. This is your last chance to scan that QR code and get on Unspeakable. Uh, if you haven't done it by now, you're probably not going to do it. So, das Rossiska, Seth Robotov. Uh, see you next time on Running in the Fog.